My name is John Kavakis. I'm one of the pastors here at Warrenton Bible Fellowship. And I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the first 17 verses. And i got a couple things I want to share with you while you're getting there. One is, for those of you that have been following the saga of our remodeled kitchen, uh, which started during the first phases of the lockdown, is now completed. And Amen. <laughs> we have been uh, blessed mightily. God has moved powerfully in our lives. And we were able to do this only with the help of the body of Christ and the grace of God. So we actually cooked a meal the day before yesterday, and I got really emotional being able to get water from the sink and turn the stove on and everything. It was just a, a great experience. So thank you for your support. Thank you for your prayers. The other thing that I want to share is Kelly and I are going to start vacation sometime this week. The elders have graciously given me some additional time off this year. My heart's desire is to quiet my soul and uh, hear from the Lord as far as where we're headed and how we're going to get there. Everybody has all these questions about what is this going to look like in three months and six months. We don't know. But we want to be sure uh, that the Holy Spirit is our guide and our counselor as we make the decisions. The elders are struggling with these things as well. So if you would pray for us, for the elders, uh, for the staff, as we work our way through these things. Uh, we appreciate the support we've gotten so far. The other thing I want to talk to you about is, you know, we're in a time where things vie for our attention. There are things competing for our attention, and it's easy for us to get overwhelmed. It's easy for us to lose our focus. I was reading a John Maxwell book a number of years ago, and he started talking about lion tamers. And, you know, if you've ever seen one of those shows where they have the lions in the cage, and a guy goes in, and he's got a whip, he's got a gun, and he's got a chair. And you, you kind of wonder, well, with, with all those weapons and everything, what's he doing with the chair? Well, what the lion tamer does is he pokes that chair at the lion. Now, lions are big, and they're strong, and they're relatively intelligent for animals, but they're not, they're not really all that intelligent because as they look at the chair, they have a, a, a struggle. They get overwhelmed by trying to decide which one of those legs of the chair they're supposed to focus upon. And because they're all coming at them at the same time. And what happens is, because they are consumed by trying to figure out what they're supposed to be paying attention to, they become docile. And they become quiet. They sit there. And the great fear that the lion tamer has is they're going to stop focusing on a chair and start focusing on him. Because once they're focused, they can do what lions do. But as long as that chair's coming at them, they can't. Well, that can happen to us. That can happen to us when we don't focus on the right thing. We can have our attention can be scattered. So I'm going to take a little bit of time setting all of this up today because this is a crucial passage in Luke's story about Jesus' ministry. Last week, we talked about the fact that touching Jesus can be life-changing, but Jesus touching you is absolutely miraculous, supernatural. It brings new life. It brings a new heart everything changes when Jesus touches us. This week, we're going to look at the result of Jesus touching us. And here's what I want you to remember for today. Brothers and sisters, it's all up to us. It's all up to us. I want you to just hold on to that and see where we, where we go in this passage. One of my passions is to not just 
stand here and preach the Bible, but to help all of us learn to read the Bible, maybe read it a little bit differently than we did before. We've talked about this before. The Bible has a narrative arc. There's a story to the Bible, starts in a garden, ends up in the new creation. It's a whole story about God redeeming his people, coming up with a plan, sacrificing his son. So there's a narrative arc to the Bible. And if we see that, if we see that narrative arc, then things begin to fit together a little bit better. Each book has a narrative arc as well. And if we can see the narrative arc, we can learn the lessons that we're supposed to learn from the passages. They're important, but there's also a bigger story. And so I, I, want, I want to help us see the bigger story. So here's the flow of Luke so far. Watch what's happened. In chapter 1, we see the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus are foretold. They're coming. In chapter 2, we see Jesus is born and makes it clear that he belongs in his father's house. In chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. In chapter 4, he, immediately after his baptism, he's tempted out in the wilderness. He begins his ministry, and we see something surprising. He's rejected by some people, particularly those in Nazareth. So in chapter 5, he begins calling his disciples. So you can see the ministry starting to build and gain some momentum. And he begins teaching. He's got this profound teaching, and he's working miracles. In chapter 6, he begins the sermon on the plain and lays the foundation for his ministry, lays the foundation for the gospel, technically lays the foundation for the church that's going to rise up as a result of his presence here on earth. Then in chapter 7, we we see him begin to show authority over certain areas of of our existence. He he shows authority over sickness, shows his authority over sin. He shows his authority over death. So he's trying to make a statement. He laid the foundation. Now he's saying this is what it looks like. And in chapter 8, he begins to identify who his followers are. They're his family. Uh, He begins to show more authority. This time we see authority over the elements. We see authority over evil and demons. And once again, we see him exert his authority over death. Now, this is important because Jesus wants his followers to know that he has authority and victory over death. So the disciples by now have seen it all. And they're probably eager to see more. I'm no doubt about that. But here in chapter 9, his ministry begins to take a very subtle turn. And if we're not watching it, we're not going to see it happen. So our passage is going to reveal something that is critically important to the church today. And we're going to see it by walking through the numbers that we see in the various different uh, sections of Luke 1 through 17. Here are the numbers. We see the number 12 in Luke 9, 1 through 6. We see the number 1 in Luke 9, 7 through 9. And then we see the number 5,000 in Luke 10, 9, 10 through 17. So let's take a look at this number 12. Now we already know from, from previous passages in Luke that the number 12 is important, okay? It's a number of perfection. Uh, and so in verse 1 of chapter 9, It says, and he, Jesus, called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure illnesses. (laughs) Wow. 
Jesus gives his followers power and authority over demons and to uh, and over sicknesses do all believers have that authority well that's kind of a question for the day and it, it's one of those debates that goes on in the church do you and I as believers in Jesus Christ do you and I as those who have accepted him as lord and savior do we have that authority Let's don't rush to a decision because there's more to it, okay? Verse 2. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So he gives them this authority and he sends them out to, to preach what? The gospel and to heal. Now, last week we saw uh, this word for uh, make better, for heal, was so-so. Uh, and again, Luke has chosen his words very very carefully. Last week he was talking about salvation and deliverance. This week the word for heal is a different word. Uh, yeah, now we saw the woman and the, the girl made so-so in chapter 8. They were delivered, they were saved, and now they are to preach the idesthe. They, they are to preach and to physically heal. So there's no mistake about what Jesus is doing here. And a lot of people today want to hold on to that phrase. Probably a good idea. It's probably a good idea. And, and I, I, I got to tell you something. Uh, I am not what they would call a cessationist. I believe that the gifts are functional in the church today. I believe that God moves in the miraculous. We've seen too much of his hand moving in our lives to think any differently. But I believe that it's all for the sake of the gospel. I believe that it's all for the sake of our witness and our testimony uh, about Jesus Christ. So we got to be careful that we don't embrace this. Oh, I have the authority to cast out demons and to heal people physically because if we accept that, we also have to accept what comes along with it. And I think sometimes people stop reading there and say, okay, that's me. Look at verse 3. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey. No, and, and just in case they don't understand what he says, he clarifies, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. He's saying, I'm sending you out, and you're not even going to take a change of clothing. There's no carry-on bag. There's no backpack with the essentials in it. You're going to go with the clothes on your back, and if we look at the other passages, talk about their sandals. So they're allowed to have some shoes. But they are going out totally, 100% dependent on the Lord. And, and, and it, it's not just their housing and their sustenance. I mean, they walk out with no food. Their next meal has to come by the grace of God and the hospitality of the people they run into. So they're totally dependent on God, even, even for the effectiveness of the ministry that he's sending them out to perform. So a lot of people want the power and authority. Not everybody wants the lifestyle that comes along with it. It's just something we have to think about. As far as the effectiveness of their ministry is concerned, in verse 4 he says, in whatever house you enter, stay there, 
and from there depart. And whatever they do, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they're, they're not, they're not going to camp out in a place. They're not going to hang around and try and convince everybody. They're going to present the gospel. They're going to depend on God, uh, depend on the family of God to, to help them. And they're trusting wholly upon God. They're, they're not there to argue. They're not there to convince. They're there to present the truth and move on. The rest, we will find out later in Acts, the rest is up to the Holy Spirit. They're to do what they're called to do. And in verse 6, And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. You know, when they received this, this idea, I'm thinking, and, and this is a little bit conjecture on my behalf, I'm thinking maybe they're excited. Uh, I mean, you, you can feel the electricity. Do you want us to do what? We have the power to do what? Maybe they're a little bit apprehensive. Can I do this? I mean, will, will it work for me? I, all these other guys look like fantastic believers. Uh, sometimes I, I have my doubts. Sometimes I don't think in a purely holy fashion. So maybe they're excited. Maybe they're a little bit apprehensive. Maybe... Maybe they're that lion looking at the four legs and a little bit overwhelmed by what they've just been asked to do. I mean, questions. What, what can I do? Where does he want me to go? How many people does he want me to talk to? Do we really have this power and authority? And maybe the biggest question of all, why isn't he going? Why is he sending me? I mean, isn't he the Messiah? I mean, he's the one that does this stuff. We've been watching him do it all this time. Why does he want me to do it? I'm just kind of tagging along on his coattails and, and watching him being, being overwhelmed by everything that I say. See, what's happening here is there, here's the shift that's occurring. Here's that subtle shift. Jesus is sending them out. He's not going with them physically. They are the ones that are going to do the work of the ministry. I took a job when I was 18 years old, working for a nursery. And uh, their big thing was laying sod. And so uh, they hired six or eight of us, and we were going to work with them through the summer, and we spent a couple days hanging around the nursery. And then they said, okay, tomorrow we're going to go out, we're going to lay sod. So they take us out to this guy's house outside of Youngstown, Ohio, and they're talking about his lawn on the way out there. We get there, and I'm thinking, it's not a lawn, it's a farm. <laughs> it's huge. And, and there's this flatbed trailer sitting there, and it's filled with sod. I don't know how many hundreds of rolls of sod that it had, but the roll of sod was about six feet long and about two and a half, three feet wide, weighed about 75 pounds dry. And we got there and he said, now we're going to take the sod off that truck and put it in this field. The field had been graded and everything. It, it looked like two football stadiums to me. And so the guy, the owner says, I'll show you how we're going to do it. If you guys grab a roll of sod, so he put me with a partner. We've got a roll of sod. He's got a roll of sod. We walk all the way across the yard, 
And I watch him put this sod down and roll it out and pat it. And then we gave him another roll and he kind of firmed them up and, and put them in. Then we did another roll in the same thing. And they said, now let's go get some more. And we went and we got three more and we put those in. Meanwhile, there were guys working on the other part of the yard and everything. And after he does the second round, he says, now I'm leaving. And I'm standing there going, what? We don't know how to do this. He said, I just showed you how to do it. He said, just do what I did. I got to tell you something. I was a little bit excited. I was a little bit apprehensive because that field looked so big. And I was totally overwhelmed. And so me and my partner are looking at him as he walks away, and he said, what do you think? I said, I guess we better start grabbing the saw. <laughs> and, you know, working together, by the end of the day, we had about half of that yard done. I thought the guy was going to come back and, and scream at us because we hadn't done a good job. And he gets out of his truck, and he looks, and he's walking, he's looking at the seams and everything, and he looks up at us, and he says, wow, you guys got a lot further than I thought you would. So we were able to do it by working together, by listening to the instruction. The disciples are going through the same type of lesson that we went through in that field. The same thing is happening. Working together, they do it. They do a seemingly impossible job. If we look in Mark, we find out that they had a successful missionary trip. Mark 6, 12 and 13. This happens after Jesus sends them out. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So the ministry shifts, the work of the ministry shifts from that one person to 12. There are 12 going on. So while all this is happening, there's some excitement at Herod's house. Now, Herod is the tetrarch of Galilee, uh, kind of like a governor, kind of like the mayor of a town. He answers to the Romans, um, and his job is to keep the peace and make sure the taxes get collected and so on and so forth. So he's part of the original Herod's family. Um, I think Herod had seven sons. He's one of them. So this is our second number we're looking at, one, Herod. Verse 7, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Herod's curious about who Jesus is. He's pondering this. And this is what Luke shows. Herod's trying to work through who this might be. And this is kind of a reflection of what's going on with Jesus' ministry. Everywhere he goes, there's some uncertainty. People are wowed by the things he's doing, but, you know, they're, they're not really committed. We talked a little bit about that last week. And so we see a couple of things here. There's some uncertainty in the region about who Jesus is. But there's two other things that we see. And one of them is that even the most powerful people have to come to a decision about who Christ is. And in order to understand that fully, there needs to be a personal encounter, not just 
the words and testimony of others. I love when I hear somebody's testimony. It moves me. But our salvation does not depend upon each other's experience. Our salvation depends upon the one-on-one -on -one experience we have with the Lord Jesus Christ when we bow before him and confess our sins and repent from the way we've been living and turn towards his righteousness. So it, it, we find out in Mark chapter 6 and in Matthew 14 that, that Herod made his decision during this whole process. And the decision that Herod came to is he must be John the Baptist resurrected. And Herod makes a fatal mistake here. He decides who Jesus is prior to a personal encounter with him. Watch this. So that when he finally meets Jesus in Luke 23, he's already got his mind made up about who he is. And he rejects him. Herod has it all figured out. And he's used his own reasoning. He's used what sounds right to him. What was the problem with the people in Israel in the book of Judges? They all did what sounded right to them. Herod's making that same mistake right here. He's figured out who Jesus is. He understands how all it is. And his opinion is fueled by pride by anger and by self-righteousness so Luke wants us to see that everyone has to decide who Jesus is but the wise ones will make their decision not on somebody's experience not on their own understanding but on a personal encounter with the gospel and if someone goes into that gospel with their mind made up already they can end up making a really, really bad decision. Now, Herod, Herod's an important man. But in many ways, he's just like everyone else. He has to decide who Christ is. One man, one decision that has eternal consequences. So let's take a look at our third number, 5,000. Verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. So, well, Herod is pondering who Christ is. Jesus takes the disciples away from the crowd. Perhaps he wants some quiet. Perhaps he wants some solitude. Perhaps he wants some, some rest. Maybe some private time with the disciples. Now, here's where they likely went. There's some question about where Bethsaida is, but it's at the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, uh, just the other side of where the River Jordan empties into the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum's on the west side, Bethsaida's immediately to the east. So apparently they go there, for whatever reason they went there, they don't get what they're looking for. 11, when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now, Jesus is healing again, but watch, the healing always comes in conjunction with the proclamation of the gospel. They go hand in hand, just like we saw in verse 6. Verse 12, now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go to the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Now, 
I, we know what's coming, if you're familiar with the passage. I don't want to get too harsh on the disciples here. I mean, they, they have some reasonable concerns and have some reasonable suggestions. But Jesus, Jesus wants to change the way the disciples think. He just sent them out with his power and authority. He just revealed to them that they would become the ministers of the gospel. He just showed them that very explicitly. Now they're back after a successful outing, flush with, with all these things that have happened, and they're back with Jesus. And, and have you ever, for those of you who are parents of grown children, have you had your kids come home? And all of a sudden they're back in mom and dad's house. And their house might be spick and span, but while they're with you, they, they, something happens, they relax. And <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, they're expecting, you know, and it, it's not a bad thing. I, I mean, you know, when Kelly and I have these visits, and we love them, we love serving our kids, but they change a little bit. The disciples are doing the same thing. They're back. Jesus is in charge. He's talking to this large group of people and everything. And, you know, they're like, hey, oh, maybe you ought to cut the teaching a little short. You know, everybody's getting hungry. And they don't have any place to stay. And there's no food. And Jesus says to them in verse 13, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Jesus isn't being mean here. But earlier, he sent them out to do what? To proclaim the kingdom of God, to cast out the demons, to heal those who are sick. He gave them the authority to preach, uh, be preachers of the gospel, and the power to back it up. He's already endowed them, and they've seen it working, and they seem to have forgotten all of that. So when he says, you feed them, they go, what do you mean, us? I mean, the nomenclature says, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. Maybe there were quite a few more if we count other people. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and they had them all sit down. What might have been going through their minds? How are we going to feed all these people? Yes, they do what Jesus says, but maybe, maybe they're a little bit excited. Maybe they're a little bit apprehensive. And for sure, they are absolutely overwhelmed at how we're going to feed all these people with this little bit of food. And in verse 16, it says, In taking five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them the disciples to set before the crowd. And working together, the disciples feed the people. Jesus produces the food. The disciples serve it up. In verse 17, they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. There's that number again. 12. The number of perfection. There was a perfect amount of food. This is what Luke wants us to see. There's a perfect amount of food to feed everybody, including the disciples. 
enough to the word full. I mean, I've seen all sorts of, of theories that explain this. Oh, they just broke it into little pieces. <laughs> you know, it, oh, the, it, it inspired everybody else to open up their lunches and share them too. This is a miracle. This is supernatural. I don't want to miss that in this passage. There's something very unusual happening, something that defies the physical laws of the world that we live in. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with the lunch of a little guy. And everyone gets filled. This is, this is not the first time this has happened. We've seen this before in Scripture. Uh, we certainly saw it in the case of manna being rained down on God's people in the wilderness. But there's another incident in the life of Elisha that pops up in 2 Kings, chapter 4, uh, verses 42 and 44. Uh, a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God, Elisha, bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley. These would be loaves, of, we would call them a roll, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give it to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give it to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. Verse 44, and he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. It's the same situation. The clear message in 2 Kings and in Luke chapter 9 is that God will provide. God will provide physical food for his people, but there's a deeper lesson here, that God will feed his people spiritually as well. Again, I don't want to miss the miracle of multiplication. It's there. Uh, we have to acknowledge it. We don't want to minimize what Jesus has done with the crowd. It's supernatural, and it's a keen lesson on how God can produce something out of almost nothing. So those are the numbers. We see the number 12. The disciples went out to the countryside, ministered in Jesus' names, uh, the, the job might have been intimidating, but by working together and trusting in God, they got it done. They were able to do what was required of them. And the startling aspect of all this is that they were the ones who were going to do the work of the ministry. We saw the number one in Herod's story. The, uh, we saw Herod confronted with who Jesus is, perhaps a question as to... Uh, what a lot of people were asking in the region at the time, uh, certainly everyone that the disciples spoke to were confronted with, who is this man? And uh, it's a decision that might be kind of dangerous in making without a personal encounter with the Word of God, without a personal encounter with the Holy Spirit. So the question that, that Herod has to answer is, is he going to define Jesus by who Herod thinks he is, or is he going to allow Jesus to define who he is? The word of God to define who Christ is. So then we see this 5,000. Incredible miracle of multiplication. An example of God's miraculous provision. But there's so much more. There's so much more. And here's, here's the bigger story. God says, you do the work. Jesus says, you feed them. 
They got a preview of uh, that very thing when they went out to preach. When it comes time to do the bigger job, they've got to be taught the lesson again. They shared the gospel. They healed the sick. They cast out demons. But by the time they returned, they were faced with an even larger task. And the situation overwhelmed them, began to look in too many directions. They hadn't yet learned about all the power and authority they had and that they had been given. And the other thing that they had, and this is why we want to give them a break, is they didn't have the Holy Spirit the way that we do. They didn't have the Spirit living inside them, giving them counsel and directions. Now, by, by the time they get to Jerusalem, I mean, the story goes on, and we'll, we'll pick this up in the next passage when we get back from vacation. Jesus is going to tell them, I'm going to die. You know, it doesn't really sink in that this idea of you do the gospel, you do the ministry, you do the feeding is going to be totally dependent upon them because he's leaving. They'd be left to carry on. So these, these passages, Luke 6, 7, and 8, and nine, they're training days. They're equipping days. Jesus demonstrates to them the power that he has and then demonstrates to them the power that they have because he's with them. Then he has them do it. I mean, it's a classic way of teaching somebody, isn't it? But the guy with the sod did Watch me do it. Help me do it. Do it on your own. Jesus is doing this with the disciples. And after he resurrects and ascends to the right hand of God, it is all up to them, all up to the disciples to move forward, to spread the seeds of the gospel, to lay the foundation for the church. Maybe, maybe they were excited. Maybe they were a little bit apprehensive maybe even overwhelmed by what they had been called to do. But working together, with the help of the Holy Spirit, they get it done. Brothers and sisters, we're in the same situation. We're no different than the disciples. And I think, I think the Holy Spirit may want many in the church to start thinking differently. You see, the disciples thought Jesus would do all the work and he would serve them. And then they find out that they're the ones called to do the work. I've talked to you about this before. We live in a consumerist culture, don't we? I mean, we, we buy, we shop, we read reviews. We, we do all these manner of things, and, and many people, praise God, not a whole lot of people here at WBF, but many people attend church for what the church will do for them. Perhaps, perhaps God is challenging us to rethink church. I mean, look at what we're going through. Maybe God wants us to rethink church and consider what we bring 
to the church, not what the church brings to us. Because the church, the church is designed to be the training day. The church is designed to do the equipping. And we as members of the church are to take all of those things that we've learned out there. And in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to do the work of the gospel. It's all up to you and me. You understand it's all up to you and me? That if this world is ever going to hear about Jesus Christ, we're the only ones that know about him. We're the only ones that can introduce someone to him personally. There's no one else but us. We've already seen that working together with the power and the authority that Christ has given us, that we can get the job done. Praise God. Amen? A little bit exciting. A little apprehensive. Amen. <laughs> Maybe even a little overwhelming. But if we can keep ourselves from being distracted by all those legs that are coming at us, maybe we can focus on the thing we need to focus on and do what we're called to do.